Amen. Well, this morning I have no inspiring opening illustration for you, but a confession that what stands before us this morning is a difficult passage for which a lot of ink has been spilled in a short amount of time. Scholars have done some research in this particular area and have found that since 1969, there have been a plethora of articles and commentaries written on these few verses in 1 Timothy. But prior to 1969, not much other than a whisper, it demonstrates to you how much our culture, Western civilization, has changed since the 1960s. Modern culture is very different than what it was. Some for the better and some for the worse. For some this morning, you might be a zeitgeist. One who follows the spirit of the age. One who seeks to let their spirit go wherever it may blow, wherever it may allow. And no doubt, many in our culture, in our contemporary setting, even within the church, have been those somewhat given to the spirit of the age. Taking more of their theological understanding from the New York Times, Wall Street, perhaps even from Hollywood, than from the Bible. Many of us more addicted to entertainment and entertaining the masses than having Jesus as the audience of one. Paul is taken up with his pen to write to his young apprentice in the faith, Timothy. To address a growing issue in the church that Timothy has been given to lead. Paul had recently assigned Timothy with the task of ordering the church's preaching and teaching ministry there in Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted alongside Timothy and many others a number of years earlier. A church that now had been plagued in recent days with false teaching, and these false teachers had sought to undermine the gospel through their false doctrines, the nature of which was centered around distortions of the Old Testament. We've considered them at length in chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, Paul now shifts from this uh, general introduction of an exhortation to deal with false teaching to, to really go at what is a church, how ought a church be ordered, how ought God's people gather. And so he puts a particular priority to the gathering of the church. And what we saw last week is, is not, I, I believe, what we would expect. As we were to consider this as a manual on church order, Paul's primary focus isn't on who the pastors are, though he will get to them in chapter 3, who the deacons are, which he will get to again in chapter 3, or even what the church is. He gets to that in chapter 3. But rather, a priority is placed on the people of God gathering under the Lordship of Jesus Christ to pray. To pray. Now, if you were to attend many evangelical contemporary churches today, I would imagine that most, if not all, of the service would be taken up with what? Music. Not prayer. 
Sadly, many times you might attend a church and you, you find prayer sort of relegated to, again, transition times within the service. It's just kind of a time for the, the band to get off the stage and, well, the next actors to parade themselves up in front of the, the audience. But Paul here in this particular letter calls to a priority in the gathering to pray for the nations. A topic which he briefly hits on again this week in his exhortation to men. Well, friends, over the next subsequent verses, Paul will, I believe, just sort of begin to drill in on the teaching ministry of the church. How is the church to teach the gospel? Uh, popular, we talk about being gospel-centered. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Well, this is what First Timothy is after. Addressing who is qualified to teach, who is qualified to lead the church, the subject matter of actually what a church is. What does it mean that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth? Well, friends, this is what we'll consider over the next few weeks. And this morning, we'll look at First Timothy chapter 2, Verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 8. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet." For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, I've summarized Paul's point in sort of a 30,000 foot view in this way. That God has created us and set his creation into its proper order. Therefore, we submit to his authority as creator by ordering our gatherings according to his purposes and plans. In other words, God has created an order creation that has been thrown into chaos through the fall. And through the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has brought about a new creation, a new order by which we are to submit to. God is the creator. A creator gets to decide how his creation lives. We're going to think about that here in a moment. A created one, one created by a creator, does not get to tell the creator what they are. The creator decides that. And the, the creator has not left us to figure things out on our own. Jesus has not created the church and invited us to participate in the church and then said, oh, I hope you figure out how to do church. 
Rather, Jesus has given us very clear instructions and design for not only life inside the church, but also outside the church. And so this morning we see really two groups, all by very foreign in our current culture, that there are two people, two, two groups, if we were to take humanity and divide them into two groups, I know this is earth shattering and, and quite revolutionary for many, there are two groups within humanity, men and women. Those biologically male and those biologically female. Those whose DNA, if you were to run your DNA, I mean, we have to be kind of specific nowadays. Those of you run your DNA, you are a, a male. And those who, when you run your DNA, you are a female. That's how God created us. And, and Paul here, not because he's a chauvinist or a sexist, he gives instructions and orders the gathering around these two genders. First, he addresses in verse 8 the men in the congregation and gives them particular responsibilities. Secondly, in verses 9 through 15, he addresses the women's role in the gathering. So these are our two points. First, the men's role in the gathering. And secondly, in verses 9 through 15, the women's role in the gathering. Now, before I dive into this, I want to say there is going to be a lot that I'm going to sort of leave on the chopping room floor. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to miss that you're going to maybe want to know answers to, and that's good. We want to continue to think about this. I want to try to stay focused, not get in the weeds too much, and just what does the text say, what does the text mean, and how does it apply to us as a congregation here this morning? Notice what Paul says there in verse 8 to the men of the congregation. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now here Paul addresses the men, not the husbands, not a few men, but the men, the males of the church, those gathered there in Ephesus. He says, this is what I want the men of the church to do. I don't want you to have a, a men's breakfast. Uh, those are good. I don't want you to have a men's uh, Bible study. Those, those are good. What I want the men of the church to do is pray. Is pray. And here Paul gives a number of aspects to the kind of prayers that these men were to have. Notice he says that, that I want them to pray everywhere. There's a place for prayer, he says. Now, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Now, this is pretty straightforward, isn't it? That every place men should pray. Now, now, does Paul say that men should pray everywhere or every place? So, so what is Paul after here? Paul is using particular language talking about the gatherings. He says, everywhere throughout the city of Ephesus, there is a gathering of, of God's people that, that the men should be praying now, this just goes without saying. That doesn't mean that the women don't pray. Not at all. But that men have a particular responsibility to lead out in the prayer of the saints in the local church. The context of prayer is the gathered church. Prayer was to infuse every aspect of the gathering. And the men were to lead in this. In other words, they were to set the example for the gathered church by obeying what Paul told them to do in verses 1 and 2. Look again, 
Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, the men of the church were to be models of obedience by praying publicly for the saints. They were to pray. They were to be men of prayer, known for their prayers. They were to take up with the, this mantle, this, this new responsibility, and to lead in it. And they were to have, he says, a particular posture. They were not to do it proud. They were not to do it hard-handedly, but rather, notice what he says, lifting holy hands. Now, a few Baptists, no doubt, get a little squirmy when we talk about lifting our hands in church. But Paul here is exhorting not a particular manner, that is mannerisms, like we you know, wave our hands when we pray, but rather a particular posture. Paul here is pulling from an Old Testament, borrowing from an Old Testament posture. I'll give you one example here. In, in Psalm 63 and verse 4, the psalmist says, So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Lifting of hands was a, was a posture, an expression of humility, of emptiness, of I have nothing in my hands. Nothing. And so it was this uplifted hand that would demonstrate devotion and humility to God. And, and Paul is, again, not saying that the only way to pray is with your hands lifted high. And all the Baptists said amen, right? Um. But that we ought to approach prayer with a posture of humility. In other words, what Paul is after here is that men of the church were to have a posture of humility, not of pride. They were to have hands that were humble and ready to say they can't. Now, if you know any man, like a man's man, what do you find? In most men's men, they're a jack of all trades, aren't they? That's prized in our culture. A real man is a man who can take on anything, who can do anything, who can take by force. Well, that's not the man that Paul paints a picture of here, is it? It's a man who's humble, a man who says he can't, apart from the supernatural power of God. Only God can do and work. Notice also here another aspect of this, these men's prayer was to be one of purity. They were to have lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul says that their hands were to be holy, that is set apart, consecrated. In other words, they were to not only be humble, but they were to be holy. They were to live lives of holiness and godliness that would permeate these prayers. Through their pursuit of holiness, their prayers would pop up repeatedly throughout the gathering. Because they lived holy lives, Jesus-centered lives, Christ-centered lives, all they could do was pray. So every time someone brought a need to him, they didn't say, I will fix that. They would say, let's pray about that. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 24, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. These are the kind of men that Paul wanted to cultivate there in Ephesus through the teaching ministry of Timothy. And I think Paul has a particular historical interest in mind, namely dealing with false teachers. Remember, false teachers were there in the church, and, 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 and 
Albeit, what was happening was it was creating conflict. This is why Paul says, listen, I want the men to pray without anger or quarreling. Paul warns these men of the church from engaging in endless disputes and discussions about nothingness. Many men have been lost in the local church through endless discussions about nothing. Many a deacon's meetings have been wrecked by endless discussions about nothing. Many a committee meetings run by some of the most noble men have been wrecked by discussions of nothingness. They were to be steady hands in the life of the congregation in Ephesus. As Paul reminds the church in Philippi, do all things without grumbling or dispute. The men of prayer were to be the men of unity. The men of, of Ephesus were, were men where gossip and division came to die in the church. Friend, in our culture, if you've paid much attention, men are often portrayed as foolish, pig-headed, and always making mistakes. One of my favorite uh, television shows uh, from the 90s, Home Improvement. Everybody left. That's the, that's the point of the whole show. Men are idiots. It, it really is written from a feminist perspective. Third wave feminism is portrayed in the wife's role. So if, you, if you've ever paid attention, that show is really about feminism more than it is about masculinity. It's about how women have to make men right and fix men because they're broken. This is how our culture views men. And perhaps there is some truth to these stereotypes about men. But regardless, Christian men, I believe, what Paul believes, ought to be known not for their foolishness, not for their masculinity and their strength, but for their prayers. Brothers ought to be known as praying men. Brothers, does someone cast their cares upon you? Do you feel the need to carry the burdens or to take them to the Lord in prayer? Christian men ought to be known for their godliness, not their worldliness. You know, in our society, men are held high if they're rough, if they're tough-handed, if they're tough-skinned. But here, Paul says, I don't want men with hard hands. I want men with holy hands. Hands that are pure and gentle, self-controlled, patient, and kind. Christian men are those who confess their sins, cleanse their hands, and seek the Lord way while he may be found. Brothers, men of Cadenceville Baptist Church, I want you to hear this as clear as if Paul was preaching this to you this morning. You have a responsibility before Jesus to pray. Period. And how dare you tell the God who formed your mouth to say, I can't do it. You've been commanded to pray publicly for God's people. You've been commanded to live a holy life that you might pray. And so pray, brothers. Be men of prayer. Prayer. 
whether it be here behind this pulpit or, or whether it be in the pews around you, whether it be in the hallways and the homes of these saints, be people who are committed to pray. Pray privately, pray publicly, pray on the streets. Give attention to your life to cultivate holy hands that you might pray. A purity of life is a must, brothers, if we are to pray rightly before the Lord. This is why purity is so essential and why it's not something we relegate because we have a job to do and that is to pray. We don't have time messing around with silly things. We need to get serious and pray. You see, men are often prone to fighting. We love a good fight. We love a good quarrel. We love a good argument. Fighting is opposed to prayer. Fighting is about control, about controlling someone else. But prayer is about giving control to the only one who is actually in control. Prayer is about trusting the one who has created us. And so, men, we must be unified in prayer and unify our church, church through prayers. Brothers, hear this, hear this, hear this, hear this. What Paul is saying to you this morning, that by avoiding gossip or rather by avoiding quarrels and fightings is this is that men you ought to be a cul-de-sac where 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 gossip and rumors and division die be a cul-de-sac to those things don't be an enabler to those who seek to divide the saints when one when one whispers divisive words about the leaders and the elders kill it don't feed it be unifiers through your prayer. Avoid such temptations. Submit to those in authority by praying urgently that the Lord's will be done. Well, that's a lot on verse 8. And we won't talk as much about verses 9 through 15. But, but brothers and sisters, God has ordained men of this congregation to lead out in prayer. If we were to have a SOP for the men of Catonsville Baptist Church, right at the top. Pray. 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 Men, pray. Well, Paul goes on from there to address the women of the church. And particularly, given the cultural climate of the day and the false teachers and the number of errors that they had drifted into, Paul is going to be much more heavy-handed, it may seem, with the women. In that they were doing things and practicing things that were contrary to God's good order. And so Paul addresses the women's role in the gathering. Number one, in verses 9 through 10, we see that women should adorn themselves with proper attire. And Paul does not mean clothes. Look here in verses 9 and 10. Likewise. Again, this is a continuation. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, what it, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul turns his attention here first to outward appearances of the women gathered there in Ephesus. Now apparently there had become an issue which had been reported back to Paul, perhaps to Timothy himself, that the attire of those gathered, the women who were gathering there, their attire was becoming a distraction to the congregation. 
In order, it was rather the primary focus for everyone's attention to be on them and their attire. And because of this, it began to cause disorder in the church. And so Paul's language here focuses on turning one's attire from an attractive outward focus to calling people to be attracted to not what they're wearing, but how they're living. Paul is not saying that women do not have anything to offer positively to the gathered, but rather they do. You know, so often when, when feminists approach this passage or egalitarians approach this passage, it's about restrictions, about what women can't do rather than what women can do. Paul is not being restrictive here. He's saying, listen, if you would just do what God has ordained you to do, this would be glorious and it would be amazing to the life of this church. And so Paul here is addressing what these women are wearing. Similar to what Peter will address in his letter to the churches. Do not let your adornment be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of gentle and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God is very precious. In other words, whose eye do you have? Paul's writing and Peter's saying. Are you focused on God or and others being attracted to you? Or, or what's the goal here? Do you want all the attention? In other words, Paul is like, listen, if this is all about Jesus and you're coming in here getting all dressing all flashy where everybody's attention's on you, then Jesus isn't the focus. Jesus, this isn't a gospel-centered church. In the same way, Paul shifts and he says, then what you need to do is live a godly life. Let that be on display because all of that came from Jesus. Now, now you see Jesus gets the credit, not you. See, Paul takes on particular attention on this cultural appropriation of the day. Again, he's not saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves. Some, sadly, have preached that message. You sisters have probably heard some terrible sermon about how women shouldn't have braided hair and wear gold jewelry. And I'm just, on behalf of all bad preachers, I'm sorry. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that women shouldn't do these things, but this should not be their focus. They shouldn't put these things on so that others might see them. They should put on good work so that others might see those. John Stott is so helpful here he writes this what paul is emphasizing is that christian women should adorn themselves with clothing hairstyle and jewelry which in their culture is an inexpensive not extravagant modest not vain chaste not suggestive in other words in that culture gold jewelry just screamed you are the richest most wealthiest person in town that may not or may be true in this particular context, right? So if, if we're here, that probably wouldn't communicate that. No doubt, a number of you fine ladies are wearing gold jewelry today. Hopefully of, of some carat value, right? Not diamonds and, 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 and nice. Well, we could be in, in, in right now in the 21st century in a, in a tribe in Africa where, where that might be seen as, as you're the richest person, right? And so those things would be put away. Our clothing is a cultural expression. What we wear is an expression of this culture, okay? We didn't, people didn't always wear this the way they, they wear today. 
And so in our culture, our clothing should express that it's not expensive, not extravagant rather, not, not vain, not suggestive. Again, Paul hears that the thrust is not negative. You can't, but positive you can. You see, don't walk away from this thinking, oh man, Paul doesn't want women to look beautiful. That is not his point at all. His point is, is that women should strive for the true beauty, which is good works. Look what he says. What it, but with modesty and self-control. And then, then lastly here, the, what is proper for women who profess godliness. Sisters, do you, is it proper for you? Now, much of this is a, is a matter of wisdom. Cultural wisdom, needing to, to you have sisters just thinking through these things and, and applying them. The point of this, though, we must take away is that your value in worth is not in your outward appearance, but in what is proper for women who profess godliness. Your identity is not in how you look. And if you don't think that is, that is a part of this culture... You need to watch some advertisements on TV. You need to flip through that magazine of yours and pay a little bit closer attention to what products are being sold to you or marketed to you. Creams that make your face not look wrinkled. Our culture doesn't value old, but what's new. Our culture doesn't value people that look worn out and tired. But God does. And this church does. Because those scars and those gray hairs came through battles of godliness and Christ-likeness. Sisters, do you think how your outward appearance is driven more by the wider culture than by your identity in Christ. In other words, are you listening more to what the world is telling you you should look like or what Jesus is telling you you should look like? Again, let me stress that giving attention to your outward appearance is not wrong. So if you misquote me on that, shame on you. I did not say that. And that is not what Paul is saying. So stop jumping on him. Rather, to give an inordinate attention to and reflection of the wider culture in what you wear is what he's addressing and what we need to give attention to. It goes without saying, brothers and sisters, and let me say this clearly for those in the back, that wearing ankle-length jean skirts and hairs up in a, in a bun is a culture in and of itself. And it does not necessarily mean it's Christian. So we must guard against thinking we must look a certain way, dress a certain way, and fit a certain part in order to be a Christian. No, God has created us to be expressive beings. We express ourselves by the crazy things we wear. All right? God's give, given us the gift of doing that. Nothing wrong with that. So long all of that is done under the... the, the the, the principle that we do what we do for the glory of God and not for the attention of those around us. 
that what we want people to be attracted to is not our outward appearance, but our outward expression of a new life in Christ called good works. That's what he says, with good works. We ought to have good works, and that's what people want to be attracted to. So sisters, give yourself to good works. We see also here in this passage, verses 11 through 14, that women should submit in learning and teaching. That women have a particular role in the life of the church to give attention to learning and to teaching in a godly, ordered way. Notice what he says there in verse 11. And this is where the the, the amount of writing begins to, to go a bit plethora. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We see first here that Paul exhorts the women there in the church to submit by learning respectfully. Paul continues his instruction by, by writing this very clear, women are to learn Quietly, with all submissiveness. Now, now a few observations as we look at this verse. So get your eyes on it so you don't miss that this is God speaking, not me. First, notice that he is addressing women in general and not wives in particular. So some have sought to muddy the waters and confuse the congregation, and, or the conversation rather, by saying, well, no, what Paul is, who he's addressing here was the, the wives in the church, not the women of the church, because you know, the same Greek word is used for both wives and women. And so, well, he, he's just really talking about wives. Your wives need to be in submissive, submission to their husbands, and, 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 they, and they need it. Well, that's not at all how uh, these translators sought to understand that and how translators, uh, since the, the, the inception of the New Testament, sought to understand it. They, no, no, Paul is dry, writing universally to women. He makes clear that this is an address to both married and single within the congregation. And therefore, it's universally applicable within the church. And I don't have this in my notes, but I want to say this very quickly um, in case someone missed it at the beginning. We're talking about the local church, brothers and sisters. All right, We're not talking about the White House. We're, we're not talking about uh, CEOs of corporations. We're talking about the local church here, okay? So let's just stay in our lane. We're talking about the local church. We, we ain't talking about society. We're talking about the local church, all right? So don't hear these comments uh, as applicable to the wider culture. We're, we're talking about the local church. We can talk about that another time. This is what Paul's talking about. We talk about the local church. Secondly, we notice here that Paul tells these women to do what? Let a woman learn. Let a learn, women learn. Now, this was unheard of in this culture. Now, women did not have equal access to education in many of the ways that they do today. As one commentary writes, this was a radical and liberating departure from the Jewish view that women were not to learn the law. This was proven fact. This is a historical fact that women were not at the same level as, as men when it came to learning. And so Paul here is not limiting what women can do, but rather giving them liberty and freedom. He said, women, learn, come, come on, get on close, let's go, let's live. They were to learn alongside their equal counterparts in the faith. Just as slaves were welcome to learn and be a part of the gathered church, so also women were of equal standing in Christ's church. This is wonderful, this is glorious, this is good news, this is liberating. Yet Paul here sought to address a particular problem. Namely, women were using this newfound freedom in Christ to cause disorder rather than unity. 
They were undermining the teaching of the church. They were perhaps motivated by the false teachers. It's really clearly unknown. We don't quite know what's going on here historically, but they were being divisive in their learning. This is why Paul qualifies the type of learning. Look what he says, verse 11. Learn quietly. Now, sadly, the King James translation has confused this whole conversation a bit. Uh, by translating, if you have any King James readers out here, uh, translating the word quiet for silent. That's not what Paul means. doesn't mean, hey, women, shut up. That's not what Paul is saying. Right? And that is not what we as a congregation are seeing, right? To, to, to remain quiet. Now, the idea here was of a quiet demeanor. Not that they were to be silent, you know, duct tape over their mouth, not say anything. Any good student knows they need to ask questions to learn. Every good teacher knows they need to engage their, their, their student in that way. To learn quietly is then qualified by all submissiveness. In other words, if you just are a novice reader, Paul actually interprets what he means with the words he uses. Look what he says. He says, quietly with all submissiveness. So Paul clearly doesn't mean to be quiet like mouth shut but rather to do the learning in a way, in a manner that is submissive. Now, I'll just say right now, we've got a lot of cultural lessons here today. That is a dirty, dirty word in this culture. All right, that's that. There is no room. But I'll, but I'll be honest with you. If you've been reading your Bible, it's all, that was a dirty word in the Garden of Eden. All right. Submiss, submissiveness has been a dirty, dirty word since the fall of humanity. Because that's why Adam and Eve rebelled, after all. They didn't want to submit. They didn't want to submit. And, and so we see that the women were to, to submit, not to men in general, but particularly in the context of what Paul's writing, to the elders' teaching. Just as their male counterparts were to do. So again, the issue culturally in this particular contextual issue was that the women were being divisive, not the men. The men were fighting and quarreling, and so he dealt with that. And over here, the women were being divisive when the elders were trying to teach. Now, I want you to imagine for just a minute, there is complete chaos in the church. There, there, there's false teaching all abounding. Timothy's going into a hot mess. I mean, people are, you got the men fighting on one side. You got the women doing their thing on the other side, undermining the teaching ministry of the elders. And Timothy's coming into this and Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remind the men they need to be focused on prayer, not fighting. And I want you to go to the women and, and get them to get their clothing act together because they're just a distraction. And then I want them to learn under the submission of the elders, they ought to submit to those in authority, not rebel against them. And so, Paul here is not giving a, a command that is only for women. But he's dealing with a particular cultural issue going on in that church. As the author of Hebrews reminds the whole church, obey your leaders and submit to those who keep a watch over your souls. In other words, everyone has a responsibility to submit to those in leadership. So Paul isn't here just merely singling out women for singling out women's sake, as if women were a universally a particular issue, but rather women ought to learn just as men quietly, with a quiet demeanor. 
They ought to submit by respecting those whom God has given to teach and lead the church. This is why verse 12 follows verse 11. In other words, don't read verse 11 in isolation from verse 12, and don't read verse 12 in isolation from the whole. He says, that is why then, he goes on, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Notice the kind of bookend uh, quiet, verse 11, quiet ends verse 12. Paul wants us to understand that he's talking about all in one and the same thing. He's demonstrating that both here, though, are positive. Friends, we, we often take commands as negative, don't we? Always, we don't do that. Don't touch the stove, son. We think, oh, he's, oh, dad is just being a jerk. He's mean. He won't let me have freedom. He won't let me do what I want. No, he doesn't want you to get burned, silly. Paul here is demonstrating that both of these commands to learn and not teach are related. And they're both positive. What is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the regular teaching ministry of the gathered church. Paul is saying that the teaching ministry of the church, those whom he will identify in chapter 3 and verse 1, as those who desire to teach and aspire to a noble task, is limited only to men. In short, Paul is teaching that women have a particular role in the life of the church, and that is not to be the main preacher and teacher or elder. Again, this isn't because they're not able I know many women who are, who are very apt communicators, very good teachers, and better than some preachers, very good, eloquent even. The point, rather, is not to be restrictive, but that they have a job to do, and that job is not to teach or to preach. He goes on to add, to exercise authority over a man. In other words, Paul is talking about a particular office and its function. He's talking about pastor elders and their function as preacher, teachers, and leaders. That's what he's talking about. He's like, I know this sounds hard, but that's not your job. Nor is it all men's job. You know, so often we talk about, hey, how restrictive that is for women. That's not fair that women can't be preachers and elders and pastors. Well, there's uh, many men that Pastor Rod and I and Pastor Scott have said, no, he wouldn't make a good elder. Is that because we're mean? Is that because we're jerks? No, it's because God hasn't particularly called that person to be that particular role. And that's okay. They have a role that they have been given by God to fulfill. Pastors, elders are called to lead the congregation through the preaching and teaching ministry. Paul here is limiting the office of pastor to men only. This is what we read earlier, and this is what we have believed and Baptists historically have upheld. That while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor, I'm reading from our statement of faith, is limited to men as qualified by culture, by our preferences? No, by Scripture. We understand that this office is limited to men as qualified. Didn't mean all men, but only those qualified by Scripture. Well, Paul grounds his teaching not in the culture, not in our current culture, not in the cultural context in Ephesus, nor, I don't, not even in the New Testament. Look what he does. Verse 13, 4. 
Now that's the word. That's, your, that's a buzzword. That's a, that's a bell should be going off. Here it is. Paul is saying that he's about to give us the foundation for his theological point that he's just made. And he makes clear, listen, brothers and sisters, that this theological teaching is not a part of a current culture or historical cultural context, but that it is hardwired into who we are as human beings, male and female. And so he writes, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Here, Paul appeals to creation, the creation of man and woman in the image of God and the order of creation. Notice here in the text, he says that they were formed. That they did not create themselves. They're not self-made men and women. They are created beings. And that they're a creator or rather, let me, before I move on, he says, he says, notice that they were not formed, that they did not create themselves, nor did they assign genders to themselves. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 2, when Adam names the animals, he does not name off genders. Genders were assigned, not at birth, not when you felt like you, you were going to be a gender of your choice, but it was assigned by the creator. The one who formed you. He said, that's a male, that's a female. Female, I want you to do these things. Male, I want you to do these things. It is God-ordained, God-purposed. Furthermore, notice that the order of creation was ordained. L listen to the language. He didn't just say, hey, God made Adam and Eve. No. More particular than that, didn't he? What does he say? Adam was formed first. Then Eve. There was an order to this madness. <laughs> yes. God has a good order. He created this order not because he thinks men are superior. That is superior beings, greater in power, strength, intellect, and ingenuity. Not at all. But he created in order because the wisdom of God sought to be expressed in this particular way. It was not an accident. It was intentional. Thus, the order that Paul appeals to is nothing more, nothing short rather, of creation itself. It's not even a New Testament teaching. It's a human teaching. It is what it means to be created in the image of God. Furthermore, Paul goes on in verse 14 to appeal to the fall of humanity that comes later in chapter 3 of Genesis as an example of what happens when one seeks to usurp God's order. I love that. We, if you don't pay attention, I mean, it's just Paul just leads you down this trail. He's like, oh, you want to do things your way? Oh, yeah. Like, well, come on. Come on. Let's do church your way. Let's see what happens. Come on with me. Come on with me. He says, well, God made Adam and Eve. Oh, yeah. And you're like, preach it, brother. Yes, he did. Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived. Uh-oh. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now. You might read that and say, man, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that women, see, they're weak. They're given into temptation. See, if you let a woman in charge, she'll fail. She'll wreck everything. That's why men need to be in charge because they're strong leaders and they can get the job done. That's not at all what Paul said. Paul essentially said this. 
you do life your way, it will end in destruction. You do life God's way, it will end in blessing and glory. That's it. He does not appeal to, the, to, to Eve and say, wow, Eve, you failed. Therefore, women can't be leaders. Women can't be pastors. Not at all. He says, Adam, you failed to be a leader, and therefore humanity failed. Paul does not mean that Adam was not culpable for his actions. All the opposite. You see, because Adam failed to protect his wife from the serpent, because he allowed his wife to take the lead of the family, and frankly, all of humanity, because of all of that, Humanity was cast into ruin, all because someone had a bright idea to say, hey, well, let's just do a little role reversal here and see what happens. You see, when men and women abandon their God-given role, chaos ensues, brothers and sisters. Just open your eyes and look at the world around you. Humanity was ruined in sin because humanity thought they could do life better and more ordered than God. And it is a reminder of our destructive natures. That if we were left to ourselves, we would destroy ourselves. And why we need a Savior, brothers and sisters. And why God promised one even in this passage. Paul goes on to say that yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now a lot of folks have, have said, whoa, wow, this is, this is deep. So women are saved when they give birth to, to babies? Not at all. The she there is singular, referring back to Eve, not plural, referring to all. She, being the woman, will be saved through childbearing. Does that mean that Eve was going to be saved through the birth of her children? Not at all, but through the birth of a child, the promised seed. In Genesis 3.15, when God was handing out curses and punishment and condemnation, he was also handing out a bit of grace. And love and redemption. And he says in Genesis, when he's talking to the servant, he says, ah, yes, you won this battle, but I will win the war. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And, and, and literally childbearing. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Where Adam and Eve brought disorder, God was about to bring order through the birth of a Savior who would conquer death and the grave. God's plan was to reorder and to bring about a new order to his creation that was thrown into chaos. And the local church, brothers and sisters, is a reflection of this good order. It must not be thrown back into chaos. This is why we make this such a big deal. It's not because there's some group of men chauvinistically sitting up in some ivory tower saying women can't do anything. It's because we know what happens when God's creation gets out of order. Chaos ensues. And so this is not a, rem this is not a reference in verse 15 to, to women being saved through childbearing or, or that even women who have children are somehow more superior to women who, who do not. Not at all. This is a reference to Eve and the promise of a child. He promises the church. He says, listen, women, if you will just stay in your lane, if you will just do what God has called you to do, there will be goodness and blessing that will result. 
as Paul focused on good works rather than on attire, so attention of the sisters must be on perseverance rather than on teaching. That's what he concludes with. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, Paul says this, women of, of the church, you have a role. Don't get distracted. Don't, don't, don't try to do someone else's job. Here's your job. What you need to do is be a, a, a stalwart, a perseverance of the faith. And, and brothers and sisters, if, if I could just, just experientially say, when I go to churches, and I've been a part of churches, and I came to this church, I just want to say something a, a little bit about those who persevere. Uh, there was a few men hanging around, but it was mainly just a bunch of godly sisters who said, we want to see Catonsville Baptist Church turned around for God's glory. We've stuck on here. We, we've not abandoned. All the men, they, little, they just gave up and quit. But we, we are here, and we're going to persevere. Brothers and sisters, that's good. That's great. That is good and godly. Again, some take Paul's instructions to women to be restrictive, bigoting, and gender biased. This could not be further from the truth. When a woman submits to God's good purposes for her life, she will be a glowing display of God's glory for all to see. She is not diminished in her personhood or her ability, but rather she puts all of God's glory on display through her obedience to God in his word. Brothers and sisters, as I think about this, and as you think about this this morning, about the roles of men and women in society, but more particularly in the church, I have a, I have a profound revelation for you to consider this morning. Men cannot have babies. I know. Many years of theological training. A lot of study has come to that revelation. They can't. No amount of distortion in modern society. No amount of modern science will allow for a man to naturally conceive, gestate, and deliver a human baby. Only women can do this. And that's a good thing. Brothers, sisters, when a child is born, it's a visual reminder. Hardwired in this creation, no matter how much this culture and any other culture seeks to distance itself from its creator and disown it, it can't. No matter how much we are confused about gender roles and gender identity in this culture, you simply can't get away from good old-fashioned biology. Just can't. There's an order, an immovable force. No amount of tinkering with the human body or acceptability in the society at large will ever change this unmovable reality. Men can't have babies. Roles cannot be reversed. The shoe can't be on the other foot. God has given us a role and a responsibility, and we should not seek to change that which God has purposed. Bill Mount's a scholar and author writes this, One of the foundational issues 
underlying most of the discussion of roles of women in the church today is the question of whether worth is determined by role. It's a good question to think about. Is one's worth determined by what job they have? By what role they have in society? Is the garbage man any less than the president? Can essential equality and functional differentiation exist side by side? Underlining much of the discussion lies an implicit assumption that a limited role necessitates a diminished personal worth. Just because you don't have this role doesn't mean you're less than. Yet the equating of worth and role is non-biblical. Secular view of reality. Nowhere in Scripture, Mount says, is the role and Nowhere in Scripture are role and ultimate worth ever equated. He goes on to quote Philippians chapter 2, where the Son of God takes on the form of a servant. Roles do not define personhood and your value. Whether you're mopping the floors or preaching a sermon, you matter equally in this church. Who do we take? Does Paul's Paul's teaching mean that women can't teach? Not at all. Does that mean that women are just to sit in a corner quietly while the men do all the hard work? Not at all. We hold to the priesthood of all believers. Sisters, you have an important role to teach throughout this church. Through small groups, through one-on-one conversations in Sunday school classes, In a variety of other settings, Christian women have an indispensable role in the life of the church to teach even men. Consider Priscilla and Aquila. Husband and wife team going down and correcting the the great preacher of the day, Apollos. She taught him. So it's not unbiblical for women to teach men. Only in the role of pastor, preacher, and teacher. Sisters, find honor in the role that God has given you. Find honor in that. Give attention to these areas of your responsibility. Do not neglect these things, but uphold them and see that God, and and, and see this, brothers, and particularly sisters, see and be clear that only women can glorify God in these ways. Only you, sisters, can glorify God. Men, as you can only glorify God in your role, so women, you can only glorify. And so make much of Jesus in these roles. Now, very briefly, before we conclude, what about those who disagree? I want to make this point as I conclude about the so-called evangelical egalitarian, those who would see no distinction in roles of men and women within the life of a church. What are we to do with those who disagree? Well, let us be patient, kind, gentle, self-controlled, loving, Well, it might not be wise for us to plant a church together. We can pray together. We can love them. And we can pray that God would give us all wisdom to to know his truth better, to live in light of his purposes for us. We don't vilify, we don't neglect, we don't run away from, but we embrace lovingly and graciously is all that we can. And patient, 
seeking the knowledge of the truth to be known by all for his glory, we pray. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that, that as you...